in all directions, there is so much truth in our favour that we can well afford to be dainty in our selection, and magnanimous, charitable, and condescending toward those who simply believe, but cannot prove, that we are wrong. We need not seize upon every crude and ill-developed result which offers, or only seems to offer, the slightest chance of becoming evidence in our favour, as every theorist is obliged to do if he would have his theory clothed and fit to be seen. We can afford to patiently wait, carefully weigh, and well consider every point advanced, in the full assurance that simple truth, and not the mere opinion of men, is destined sooner or later to have ascendancy. In Veritate Victoria, Parallax, London, September 24, 1872. At least, that's what I hear. Sometimes our imaginations are captured by the possibility of alternative explanations. Join me as we explore the historical events and public state of mind that influenced the appeal and popularity of the most enduring alternative theories out there. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. On this episode, episode 18, part 1 of our series on the Flat Earth Theory. What are the basic tenets of Flat Earth Theory, and where did it come from? How did such a controversial theory make traction and gain momentum? How do our perceptions shape our reality, and can those perceptions lead to Flat Earth? After the break, we will unroll this topic iron out the facts, and hopefully land flat on this well-rounded topic of Flat Earth Theory. Howdy, theoryologists, and welcome to 2019. All right, well, as I kicked this off and, and got back into the groove of things, I quickly determined that this would require multiple episodes because, <laughs> boy, howdy, there is a lot to discuss with this magnum opus of a topic. But, you know, hey, it's the perfect way to kick off a new year. I mean, this is the theory to end all theories. Right? Flat Earth posits that our understanding of Earth as a heliocentric globe is, at best, a misguided and faulty understanding of the physical nature of our world. And at worst, it's a concerted effort to propagate a lie contrary to our observation and and our own perceptions of the world around us. Now, in this first part of the series... It will be helpful to understand the the history surrounding the modern origins of flat earth theory. Not just 
of those that developed and promoted the ideas, but of the current state of thinking contemporary at the time. The 19th century was a time of change, thought, new ideas, and reformations pretty much throughout the world. Ingrained psychology plays its part as well. You know, as usual in our discussions, notably, the philosophical movements of the time paved the way for openness to the new perceptions of reality and existence. Okay, so let's move into our background and origins discussion. See, the, the background of Flat Earth, also known as Zeteticism, is really that it's the belief that the Earth is not a globe, but rather a flat disk, or mostly flat. I mean, depending on the, the variant of the proposed theory. And it's centered at the North Pole, and bordered along the circumference by a wall of ice, which is incorrectly presumed to be the continent Antarctica. Additionally, the sun and the moon are themselves disks, equidistant from the Earth, embedded in a domed cosmos that covers the disk Earth through which the sun, moon, and stars all move around. Our perceptions of a horizon along with objects sinking below them and rising from the horizon are, are simply due to the impact of distance and perspective. There are numerous other little details, but, but that gives you kind of the high-altitude perspective on the theory. So, where did it originate from? Oh, typically, again, we're talking about the modern day. Now, the, this modern era of flat-earth theory is most usually attributed to the 19th century English writer and inventor, Samuel Burley Rowbottom. Now, for those of you trying to correct me, it was most probably correctly pronounced Rowbottom. But you will hear Rowbottom on pretty much every single podcast discussing this. Uh, still, I'm going to pronounce it Rowbottom. Okay, so... Let me just give you the Wikipedia summary to to under to to cover the the brief origin story on that. Writing under the pseudonym Parallax, uh, Robottom produced a pamphlet uh, titled Zetetic Astronomy in 1849. The prelude to which uh, comprised the introduction segment, actually at the top of the episode, this pamphlet argued for a flat Earth and published results of many experiments that tested the curvatures of water over a long drainage ditch, followed by another called the inconsistency of modern astronomy and its opposition to the scripture. Robottom also produced studies that purported to show the effects of ships disappearing below the horizon, and that they, that could be explained by the laws of perspective in relation to the human eye. In 1883, uh, he founded, actually many of his followers began founding Zetetic Societies in England and in New York, to which Robottom shipped a thousand copies of Zetetic Astronomy. And that pretty much gives birth to Flat Earth Theory. Well, as the story continues, we actually get into a bit of the history for Flat Earth Theory and where it went from there. After introducing his reasoned theory on a disk Earth, Rowbottom developed a following and some level of fame 
by engaging in lively public debate with scientists and opponents of the day. Now, after Robotham's death, his followers established the Universal Zetetic Society, notably a very vocal advocate, Lady Elizabeth Blount. As with Robotham, Blount used a mix of scriptural and experimental arguments to support her views. The international social status of Lady Blount helped in recruitment for the fledgling society. In the United States, Robotham's efforts were continued by individuals such as Joseph Holden and Wilbur Voliva. Holden uh, became a prominent flat earth lecturer in the late 19th century. Uh, he was a justice of the peace and one-time Senate candidate. Holden used a very casual human perspective approach to his lectures. Holden appealed to common sense evidence and personal observation to argue the truth. Voliva, like Robotum, led a, a utopian commune, serving as mayor of Zion, Illinois. The town taught flat-earth doctrine based on biblical interpretation, and taught it in all schools. The Universal Zetetic Society and the flat-earth movement in general seems to have lost its steam through the early 20th century, most likely due to population focus on issues such as world wars, economic crises, and political and international restructuring. Still, it wasn't completely abandoned. In 1956, Samuel Shenton, a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society and Royal Geography Society, founded the International Flat Earth Research Society, better known as the Flat Earth Society, in England. Ifers was tended, uh, intended to be a direct descendant and continuation of the Universal Zetetic Society. Shenton believed in a flat, infinite plane, with our livable area surrounded by a dome with a central exit point. This variation on the flat earth theory even made room for a possibility of other such dome worlds existing elsewhere on this infinite plane. The Flat Earth Society gained traction in the late 1960s with the introduction of NASA's Apollo program. In 1972, leadership of the Flat Earth Society was assumed by Charles K. Johnson and his wife, Marjorie, operating the society out of their home in California. Under the Johnson's leadership, the society incorporated and swelled in membership to upwards of 3,000 people. Johnson viewed the Apollo moon landing and space exploration as farcical and, and a ruse to lead people away from biblical truth of a flat earth. Activity and membership, though, all but came to a halt with the destruction of records and contacts due to a house fire in 1997. But the Flat Earth Society was resurrected officially in 2009 by Daniel Shenton, no relation to Samuel, creating a web presence and, and effectively bringing Flat Earth into the 21st century with collections of literature and even a wiki. Modern Flat Earth proponents make up a broad, loosely affiliated network of, of truth seekers that utilize social media and new media platforms such as blogs, video, and audio podcasts to promote a wide variety of flat earth positions 
and interpretations. Now, of course, any discussion of, of flat earth history includes a, a finger walk through the annals of history upon which we are supposed to recognize this non-globe thinking has surfaced again and again, while also noting that most civilizations came to a globe earth conclusion. Well, frankly, in my humble opinion, the history of human understanding of planetary science isn't applicable to the discussion of flat earth theory as it's framed in modern day. I mean, yes, the Greeks, Egyptians, Chinese, Babylonians, and medieval Europe, etc., etc., all have their various concepts of the size, scale, and shape of the earth. And if you want to read a bunch about it, jump onto uh, Flat Earth on, on Wikipedia. But all these interpretations and theories were were based on observations and, and perceptions that were purely grounded in a very small world, relatively, surrounded by vast oceans and an unfathomable expanse of sky above. Even the abilities of the sciences in their infancy could barely make observations of space and scale much beyond the naked eye. The oceans, once finally traversed, only proved to be bigger than imagined. No flight, difficult travel, and limited technologies. I mean, even as we discover more and more that ancient peoples seem to have had a greater understanding of astronomy and mathematics than even previously believed, much of their efforts were spent on understanding why they were there and, and how they exist. Concepts of the shape of the world function within these concepts. Right, they, they help to explain the world metaphysically, couched in mythologies and stories. If it made sense for the world to be flat in the context of how it came about through the actions of, a cre of creative deities, then so be it. These were then accepted with no need to prove through experimentation. The same should be said of those that concluded that the world was spherical. Right, Even as we move forward in history to seafaring empires, that came to uh, to more recognizable understandings of the earth as we as we see it today. Uh, these were practical conclusions that benefited trade and expansion. I mean, the point is that it wasn't considered settled science. With every exploration and advancement in navigation and mathematics, maps improved, scales improved, and our perceptions of the earth changed. And no. Columbus did not have to convince anyone that the earth was round. It was presumed that India could be reached going west, but no one knew how long that would take, and whether you thought the earth was a globe or a disk, you would make the same assumption. Regardless of all that, earth science was, wasn't a matter of discussion and common knowledge except within the minority of learned nobility and, and scholars. Most people couldn't care less what the shape of the earth was because they never learned one way or the other, nor did it impact their lives and their existence. The world was a very different place by the time Robottom started conceptualizing his theory. And with that, we're going to move into the theoryology. Well, there are several concepts to be introduced in this first part of our Flat Earth series. First, we're going to explore a bit of historical context by understanding 
really who Samuel Robottom was and, and why there was an audience for his theories in the first place. Then we'll wade into the shallows of philosophy to discover the ideas of thought being introduced at the time. And finally, we'll look at uh, in at uh, psychological aspects and, and into the psychological component to bust open this, this door on the idea that perception is reality. So first, let's look at Robottom, right? And to do that, we have to understand the Owenite commune and this concept of utopia, uh, utopian socialism. See, Robottom was a, a leader in an Owenite uh, commune for, for a short time and subscribed to, to this introduced concept of utopian socialism. See, it was, it was a method based on establishing seemingly rational propositions for organizing society and convincing others of their rationality and or desirability. It's, it's often described as the presentation of visions and outlines for imaginary or futuristic ideal societies, with positive ideals being the main reason for moving society in such a direction. This idealized approach to uh, communalist social structures proved pretty unsuccessful in practice when attempted, but it, it paved the way for the burgeoning communist and socialist movements in the 19th century, as well as the development of uh, labor organization movements that led to improvements in working conditions and education. See, this concept was developed by... Uh, a heavy influence on on Samuel Robottom. His name was Robert Owen, hence the Owenite communes. See, though we won't get into really his extensive history, as, as he was not personally involved with the development of flat earth theory, his influence on Robottom, it, it's evident. See, um, Owen's efforts at social reform are, I mean, they're vast and, and notable, although probably not that successful. In the mid-19th century, Owen readily relied on his own observations, experience, and, and thoughts to, to make uh, his determinations on human nature and the world. See, and this is carried forward and reflected in Robottom's thought process. Now that we understand Robottom's background uh, a bit more and, and the influences, um, you know, we... And we'll talk more about that as, as we conclude. But we've got uh, a, a community, a commune, that is very focused on using their own observations, their own experience and thoughts to, to understand their reality. And uh, for many, and in, in, in a lot of cases, this was new thinking, uh, at least rediscovered thinking. Uh, but... Let's look at now the <laughs> the beginnings of of the uh, flat Earth thinking that uh, that got Robottom going. And to do that, let's let's talk about the Bedford Level experiment. See, this experiment is essentially the basis and foundation for Robottom's theory and the beginnings of zeteticism. See, it's it's actually a simple enough experiment, which he conducted in 1838. He waded into a, a six-mile-long straight line of a canal 
known as the Bedford River. From his in-river vantage point, he used a telescope held about eight inches above the waterline and observed a rowboat move away from his location. He was able to observe the boat and a flag on its mast remain in view the full six miles. This outcome contradicted the calculated effect of curvature, which should have put the mast out of sight and below the horizon. Of course, this result was the basis for his original publication. There is much to discuss about this experiment and subsequent attempts, which we'll actually address in part two of the series. For now, what's important is the location itself. See, in addition to the the social influence uh, on Robotum, uh, let's look at the uh, geographic influence. And, and to do that, we're going to talk about the fens. See, the Bedford-level experiment took place in this eastern coastal region of England known as the fens. <laughs> this is a sea-level coastal region that is flat, agricultural, and sinking. Did I mention flat? And, and that canal I mentioned? It was constructed in the 17th century in an attempt to control drainage and flooding. It was a long, straight line with a straight line of sight in a very flat area with wide open views. I mean, flat. <laughs> so, you have a population that is in a community that is going off of very personal observation, right? They're making decisions based on a personal observation and perspective and, and trying to understand human nature and their world through these, these decidedly individual um, conclusions, right? Now look at where they're doing that. These people are, are making these observations. They're hearing this argument, Right, they're hearing this theory of Robotum and looking right around at where they're at. And they're looking at a coastal area. They're looking out to the sea. They are looking flat. Now, I grew up on in Gulf Coast, Texas. I can tell you flat. And then there's people that uh, in other parts of, of the country that would tell you that I don't know flat, that they know flat. <laughs> there is a very real observable concept of flat in those areas and at sea level. And we'll get into it um, in a little bit that might explain why that's the case. But first, let's let's look at current day, right? The, the current day resurgence of flat earth concepts, they, those stem from similar social and political changes, as well as advances in science and technology. I mean, actually, we discussed these driving issues in the pilot episode of the podcast uh, when discussing the moon landing conspiracy. So we're not going to dive into it now, but those same sort of, of social changes that were occurring were occurring at this time, or at least in their infancy, and beginning to influence the population that was ready for some new ideas. Um, or to revisit some old concepts in a very new in a new way. Uh, so we'll we'll talk about that again more in, in as in the successive parts. Uh, but I think that's enough really of talking about 
history. I just wanted you to have a better understanding of where Roe Bottom came from and his influences, and not just his, but the community at the time. I mean, there's a reason he had an audience willing to listen to him. But on top of that, let's step into some of the broader philosophical introductions of the time. And to do that, we're going to talk about a concept known as absurdism. You know, as as really as to the discussion of the philosophical understanding of, of absurdism, um, I'll give you the basically this wiki version as a sample highlight. I mean, simply to discuss the contemporary influences on that population of the time of Robotham's writings and lectures. Uh, you know, it, I tell you what, though, if you find philosophic and philosophical discourse and history as fascinating as I do, I suggest that you check out a podcast called Philosophize This. I love that. It's a great show. Check it out. Listen to it. Okay, so on to absurdism. In philosophy, see, the, the absurd refers to the conflict between the human tendency to seek inherent value and meaning in life and the human inability to find any in a purposeless, meaningless, or chaotic and irrational universe. This universe and the human mind do not each separately cause the absurd, but instead the absurd arises by the contradictory nature of the two existing simultaneously. Now, if you recognize any of this at all, this is a concept that stems out of existentialism. See, as a, as a philosophy, absurdism explores the fundamental nature of the absurd and how individuals, once becoming conscious of the, observe, uh, of the absurd, should respond to it. The absurdist philosopher Albert uh, Camus stated that individuals should embrace the absurd condition of human existence while also defiantly continuing to explore and search for meaning. In absurdist philosophy, the absurd arises out of a fundamental disharmony between the individual's search for meaning and the meaninglessness of, of the universe. Meaninglessness. Uh, catch me how many times I try and say that. Funny. As, as beings look for meaning in a meaningless world, humans have really have three ways of resolving the dilemma. See, Kierkegaard and, and Camus describe the solutions in, in their works, the uh, sickness unto death and, and the myth of Sisyphus, respectively. Um, well, the three options are suicide, and then religious, spiritual, or abstract belief in a transcendent realm, and then uh, really simply accepting the absurd. But let's let's get into that. So suicide. Well, it's a solution in which a person ends one's own life. And uh, both Kierkegaard and, and uh, Camus dismiss this viability of, of really of, as an option. Camus states that it does not counter the absurd, but instead it, in the act of ending one's own existence, one's existence becomes more absurd. So in short, that's not an option. Don't choose this that one. So, what are the options when dealing with this absurd? Well, Kierkegaard uh, leaned on 
choosing a religious, spiritual, or, or abstract belief in a transcendent realm, or being, or an idea. See, it was a solution in which one believes in the existence of a reality that is beyond the absurd, and, as such, has meaning. Kierkegaard stated that a belief in anything beyond the absurd requires an irrational, but perhaps necessary, leap of faith into an intangible and empirically unprovable um, state. Now, well, let's talk about Camus first. See, Camus contradicted that. He, in regard to this solution, he, he didn't like that. He didn't like the idea of this acceptance of, of something irrational in his mind in order to have value beyond the absurd. He actually argued for acceptance of the absurd. It's a, it's a solution in which one accepts the absurd and continues to live in spite of it. In other words, go on and live in spite of this need to search for meaning in a meaningless world. Camo endorsed this solution believing that by accepting the absurd, one can achieve the greatest extent of one's freedom by recognizing no religious or moral constraints, and, and really by revolting against the absurd through meaning-making, while accepting simultaneously uh, that it's an unstoppable, you know, and one could find contentment through this transient personal meaning constructed in the process. Kierkegaard, as we said, on the other hand, regarded that solution as madness. Um, so, you know, why do I bring this up? Why does the absurd matter? Well, we're not diving into the existentialist movement other than to say that it was beginning with Kierkegaard at the time. See, he was exploring this, this idea of finding meaning and, and getting people thinking about this, this, this understanding of pursuing meaning in a meaningless world. Well, he was opening up people, this, this idea people had to grasping something that was um, spiritual, something abstract, something transcendent, right? He said all of these things. And, and it was that thinking that was a solution to, to the absurd. Well, uh, if you don't think that that was influential, well, Clearly, it was. Actually, you can see it as people moved into that concept of, of utopian socialism and Strider started trying to explore it and other social uh, movements at the time, uh, especially those that were based on uh, a, a religious foundation and a, a biblical basis such as Robotum. Um, it actually also moved into and, and influenced the spiritualist movement uh, a bit later in the 19th century. So there's there's a lot of value in looking at this philosophical movement of existentialism and people's exploration of the absurd and ultimately trying to find meaning uh, as, as to why an audience of greater audience, a larger audience, is was willing to even listen and entertain Robotom's theories, if only to just to disagree with them. But now that we've talked philosophically, 
let's move on to uh, something that that uh, perhaps will explain and actually ties in to those perceptions of the community first listening and that coastal region. Why I emphasize the idea of the region being flat? Well, there's actually a concept I came across called perceptual constancy. See, differences exist between individuals in sensory and perceptual processing as well. This means that we may not all be experiencing the same reality. Okay, I'll give you a second to let that process. We may not all be experiencing the same reality. What do I mean by that? Well, visual scientists have long known that the brain processes incoming visual information in a way that yields perceptual constancy. In vision, perceptual constancy is the ability to see objects not as changing in shape, size, location, or color, despite changes that may occur in viewing angle, or distance, or lighting. See, this helps us to make sense of the world. I mean, could you imagine if if our visual perception of the world were constantly changing uh, due to minor variations in viewing angle and or light source? I mean, it would lead to perceptual confusion and chaos. Imagine looking at a closed door and understanding how wide that is, but when the door is opened, you suddenly thought that the door had shrunk and, and was now much narrower. That's perceptual constancy. Understanding that the shape of the door, the size of the door, has not changed despite your viewing angle, you know, despite what you're seeing. Well, if that if that still doesn't quite convince you of this this alternate uh, or the, I guess the possibility of perceiving reality differently, let's look at the case of the blue and black dress. Now, there's an image that is often circulated in social media of a dress that is seen by half the viewers as blue and black, and the other half see it as yellow and gold or white and gold. Why? Well, when we view an object, the light source reflects off it, and the light waves that reach our eyes are processed by photoreceptors in the retina. These photoreceptors send information to the brain, which then constructs our perception of the object. For example, fluorescent light gives off a higher percentage of yellow light than that it, what's found in the, in the color spectrum of daylight. However, we don't see everybody in all things as yellow-tinged when we're indoors under fluorescent lighting conditions. Why? The, well, the brain works to subtract out the extra yellow. In other words, to, to compensate for the colors present in the light rays of this lighting, this illuminant, in order to yield our ultimate perception. Our visual system discounts the information about the light source so that we process the colors of the actual object being viewed. Now, this seems to be exactly what may be happening in the case of the famous color ambiguous dress. And for those of you that have seen this, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen this, I'm going to I'm going to find it and post a link in the show notes with an example of this dress. See, the dress is actually blue and black. However, when some of us see the dress and our brain assumes that we're looking at it in 
daylight conditions uh, and make some adjustments to account for the color spectrum of the light source. For about half of us, the brain discounts the blue side of the light source, subtracting out the blue from the actual color of the dress so that we perceive the dress as white and gold or yellow and gold. For the rest of us, the brain discounts the gold spectrum of the light, yielding a totally different perception of the dress as that of blue and black. <laughs> Your mind should be blown. It certainly was for me. I wasn't familiar with the blue and black dress example, but it's out there. Okay, so we've covered a lot, and I, and I know I didn't do justice to any of these concepts, and I'll try to blame that on taking a few weeks off over the holidays, but there really is a point. As usual, we're trying to answer the question, why do we find it so interesting, whether we agree or not? Well, let's review. I mean, early on, Robotom was influenced by Social utopian ideas that were being explored in commune experiments in the mid-19th century. These utopian socialist ideas were being touted by people like Robert Owen. that presented ideas in a seemingly rational proposition and then endeavored to convince people of their rightness precisely because of the desirability of the idea. This is exactly how Robotham presented flat earth. It was rational, it was laid out, it was based on scientific evidence, and it was ideal. And people were receptive to the idea. And his initial audience that shared these utopian, this utopian background, I mean, they were open to this type of persuasive presentation. Additionally, the existentialist movement that began with the works of Soren Kierkegaard uh, was, was reintroducing a concept of meaning to life, being found by the individual. This is a very influential movement that has been impactful well into today. What's, what's more meaningless than a little ball of a planet spinning around with other little planets arbitrarily around a big burning ball itself flying meaning, meaninglessly through infinite uh, space. I mean, it feels rather absurd, doesn't it? Well, an observable world that quote-unquote is what it appears to be when simply observed makes a, a lot more sense when you find yourself wanting meaning to the world. And we're going to explore some more of those arguments presented uh, in part two of the series. Now, lastly, as for perception, and we'll discuss that even more in part three, perception isn't necessarily reality. When you look out into the horizon, do you see a flat plane or the curved edge of a sphere? I mean, do you see the blue dress or the gold one? And which one is the correct view? Okay, that's it for today. Thanks for joining me on this first part of our Flat Earth series. Please follow and subscribe so that you don't miss as we continue on and, and flesh out uh, more Flat Earth theory and what makes it such a driving fascination for us. You can connect with me um, via email, contact at conspiracytheology.com. You know, join the Facebook group. 
find me on Twitter. I'm at, at TheoryologyPod. Or, hey, just recommend the show to others. That'd be awesome. All the info can be found at the show website, conspiracytheoryology.com, including how to support the podcast on Patreon. As always, music is by Adam Henry Garcia. So if you like what you're hearing uh, and you want to hear more, visit adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. All right, that's it. I'll see you again next time. So until then, remember, beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoryology.